We will be in James one more Sunday morning, so please turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, and we'll be covering verses 1 through the first part of verse 6. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word, for allowing us to be here together to hear your word. Father, I ask that you would help me, that you would guide my speech as as we talk about speech this very morning. Father, help us to examine our hearts in light of what we hear, to know our state before you. And we ask that souls would be saved. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us, to lead us, to guide us, to convict us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last Sunday morning we talked about the sin of partiality in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2. And we saw that James gave a command to show no partiality. And then he essentially spent the rest of the, the chapter answering potential objections or excuses for sin. He anticipated people excusing their sin by uh, their sin of partiality by claiming that they were simply obeying the scripture, I am loving my neighbor as myself. And James knows that's not what they were doing. Knowing that some of his readers were actually showing partiality, not loving their neighbors, he he tells them if You show partiality, you sin, and you are a transgressor of the law. But James, knowing the tendency of mankind to belittle our sins, tells his readers that all sin makes us transgressors of the law. If we break one command, we become lawbreakers. We can't justify our sins by saying that we we broke one of the non-important laws. And then he tells them to behave like Christians. 
because they were not. And after that, he anticipates that some would, would still refuse to acknowledge their sin and repent. But instead would say, you come to me with that law, but I'm saved not by my works, but by my faith. Which is true. We are saved by faith. But being saved by faith is never an excuse to sin. So in the PM service last week, we saw James answer this objection by proving that faith without works is dead. So you can say, well, I'm saved by faith. But if you don't show works, he says, if you don't show fruit, that is not a true saving faith. And then James anticipates another objection or excuse. He anticipated that some Christians would would not like being challenged on their faith. You can think of the, the proud, arrogant, even reformed man who says, don't you dare tell me the basics of saving faith. And so he's Essentially, probably quoting the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He says, you believe God is one. In other words, you are orthodox. You have the right theology. But guess what? Demons are orthodox. He says, the demons believe and they tremble. So here, this indicates that that simply believing the right things, simply intellectually assenting to the truthfulness of the gospel does not equal salvation. This is why we see many orthodox people, many reformed people, even pastors who eventually just cast away their faith. Why? They were never saved. Yes, they were orthodox. Yes, they believed the right things and they even knew how to teach the right things, but they never actually embraced it. They never had a true saving faith. They never actually trusted in Jesus for salvation. They just loved theology, loved studying. So here's a person whose works does not line up with their theology. Again, which is a problem because no matter how much theology we understand, no matter how well we are even able to teach theology, No matter what we say we believe, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So now we have a transition. A transition from good works to the tongue. And why is this? Douglas Moo gives us two reasons. Number one, our words are a form of works. When James says that, that, that faith produces works, that means that faith produces a certain type of speech as well. So much so that Jesus could say, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And then secondly, in James chapter 1, verse 26, James identifies control of the tongue as one of the clearest examples of true religion. Do you remember that? If a person believes 
He's religious. He says he's religious, but does not control his tongue. His religion is what? Useless. <clears throat> so we could say that our text today is a, is a continuation of these themes. Of identifying true and pure religion before the eyes of God. And identifying a, an actual faith that produces fruit or works. And so the first thing we see in our text is the sinful disposition of the tongue. James says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. James transitions into this section by, by warning those who desire to teach, but this is not just for those who desire to teach. But he's telling us that, that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That those who are teaching are, are either using their words to, to build people up in the faith, or they are using their words to deceive people and essentially damn them. Leading them astray with a responsibility and influence such as that, it requires great accountability. He's saying that God is not going to sit here and, and, and allow a person to stand before others and, and lie to them on behalf of God. No, they will be held to greater strictness. And this is a sobering truth. Why? Because we teach with our words. And listen to what he says. He says, for we all stumble in many things, and if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. James is saying that we, we all sin in many ways, and if a man can bridle his tongue, if he can restrain his tongue, he is also able to restrain his entire body. In other words, it is extremely easy to sin with the tongue and very difficult to restrain the tongue. And since we all sin in many different ways, it is very likely that we will sin with our tongues, sin with our speech. David understood this. And so he said in Psalm 39.1, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. David says, muzzle me because my tongue is prone to sin. MacArthur summarizes this point by saying in Scripture, the tongue is variously described as wicked, deceitful, perverse, filthy, corrupt, flattering, slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, foolish, boasting, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual, and vile, and that list is not exhaustive. And he says, no wonder God put the tongue in a cage behind the teeth, walled in by the mouth. Using another figure, someone has observed that because the tongue is in a wet place, it can easily slip. 
Mu points out that so difficult is the mouth to control, so given is it to utter the false, the biting, the slanderous word, so prone to stay open when it were more profitably closed that the person who has it in control surely has the ability to keep in check other less unruly members of the body. The, the, the tongue is so prone to sin that if you can control that, you can control any other thing in your body, he says. And James addresses teachers as a warning because teachers are constantly using the tongue. Teachers are, are constantly using the very thing that we are most likely to sin with. Think about that. And again, this applies to all of us. This is what we do. We communicate with one another. Mostly with the very thing that we are most prone to sin with. But is James overstating this matter? I mean, after all, the tongue is such a very small part of our body. Is he exaggerating here? James answers this question by demonstrating the power of the tongue despite its small size. And so he says in verse 3, he he gives us two illustrations here. The first one is in verse 3. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body. Here's an illustration. You put a little bit in a horse's mouth And this massive, powerful creature with with muscles bulging from its body can be controlled by a little weak child. He says, this is what the tongue is like. This small thing, but has great power. And then he gives another illustration. Verse 4, look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, They are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. A ship. A massive ship. In a large body of water being being driven by the wind. Can be controlled by a little piece of, of vertical wood on the back of the ship that's moved horizontally to control the direction. And you think to yourself, this little piece of wood controlling this this massive ship. The point is stated in verse 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member and it boasts great things. What he is saying here is that even though the tongue is such a small member of our bodies, it has great influence. It has great power. Like a rudder on a ship. Or like a bit in the mouth of a horse. And dear friends, this is a double-edged power. The tongue can do great good, but it can also do great damage. Consider Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Did you notice the power of the tongue in that statement? Here's a situation. 
Your tongue has the ability to do one of two things. Either it can escalate this situation with a harsh word, or it can pacify the situation with a gentle word. That's powerful. That in many cases, here's a great argument, and the argument can be solved with the power of the tongue. I open my mouth, what do I say? Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And this is greatly summarized in Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And we could look at this both physically and spiritually. Death in life, in the power of the tongue. How many people have been put to death on the testimony of a witness? Death in life, in the power of the tongue. How many people have been put to death falsely, wrongly, on a false testimony of a witness? Death in life, in the power of the tongue. But, but what about spiritually speaking? The, the gospel, something that, that we communicate verbally, is called the power of God unto salvation. When we proclaim the truthfulness of the gospel, people are saved. Life is given. But so many people in our world today have been given a false gospel. They've been told to repeat the sinner's prayer. And so they they believe that they are saved when they are truly not. Because damning words have been spoken to them, declaring them to be saved because of a prayer. This false gospel has brought death to many. Many people have gone to their grave under the wrath of God, thinking they were saved because of a false gospel. People on their deathbed saying, no, I don't, I don't need the gospel. I was baptized as a baby. I'm saved. I'm good. Death brought about from the tongue. Dear friends, just consider this power. How just one right word spoken to you can give you hope. And how one word spoken to you can disturb your soul. Make you depressed. Make you anxious or or worried. There's so much power here in the tongue. But what happens... With something, when, when something that is so prone to sin has so much power, great destruction often happens. So James tells us about the destructive nature of the tongue. He says in verse 5, See how great a forest a little fire kindles. We can read the account of the, the great Chicago fire. 
supposedly started by a cow kicking over a lantern in a barn. Before it could be contained, 17,500 buildings were destroyed. 300 people dead. And over 125,000 people left homeless. From a lantern. And then in 1903, a, a pan of rice boiled over onto a fire, spreading coals across the room and starting a blaze that eventually consumed a square mile of a Korean city, burning some 3,000 buildings to the ground. Can you imagine that? One little pan of rice boiling over and then destroying over three thousand buildings. Or if you read about some of the the, the great wildfires that have happened throughout history, you you see upwards of of three million acres of forest consumed by a fire. Millions of acres of forest consumed from what started as a spark. And wildfires are actually quite amazing to study. Consider this this, um, explanation of of what happens here. Once they've started, wildfires feed hungrily on fuel, oxygen, and heat. The key word is convection. When a fire starts, it generates a tremendous amount of energy which drives hot air up and away. But, But when that hot air rises, cooler air rushes in from every direction to replace it. This gives convection. And once that happens, you get stronger and stronger winds blowing toward the center of the fire. And when a fire gets good convection, it increases in momentum and energy. That's because as more and more oxygen consumes, comes into the air, it feeds the fire. The flames get warmer. And when things get to a certain temperature, they begin to catch fire. As the fire heats up the surrounding fuel, that fuel catches fire. In other words, once a tree has reached a certain temperature, it literally bursts into flames. And the more trees that catch fire this way, the hotter things get, which leads to more trees combusting. Added to that are the presence of flammable chemicals, hydrocarbons. In trees that can be carried by the wind. These hydrocarbons literally catch fire and then are blown to other parts of the forest floor, causing more fuel to ignite. A particularly strong wind also can cause a phenomenon called spotting, which refers to sparks blown from a fire onto a piece of fairly distant ground. If there is a dry fuel on the ground, pine needles and blades of grass can burn in an instant. It will ignite and a new pocket of fire will erupt. And the same thing happens again and again and again. These fires become so massive that it's like its own little self-sustaining system. They become so hot that they actually affect the weather, the atmosphere above it. And nothing will stop them as long as there is fuel. 
Proverbs tells us, three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, and the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. What was the point of me reading you that long description of a forest fire? It wasn't to teach you science. It was to show you what is inside of our mouths. Verse 6. And the tongue is a fire. We just saw what fire does. Like a little spark that can burn millions of acres of forest. So the tongue is a very small thing, but it has the capacity to do great damage. MacArthur said, No other bodily part has such far-reaching potential for disaster and destruction as the tongue. And not only is the tongue capable of great destruction, but listen to what James says next. He says, a world of iniquity. It has the capacity to do great damage, and it is a world of iniquity. Think about the the vastness of space. We we look above us and we see the, the stars and we see all these different galaxies and we think about the vastness of this. And what do we say? It's like a completely different world up there. Or we think about the vastness of the ocean, even, even just the abyss of the ocean. And we say it's like a, a totally different world down there. Because of the size and and the diversity of of things that are there. And so it is with sins of the tongue. It's it's an entire world of iniquity. As one preacher put it, the tongue is like a planet. And on this planet there there are different continents. And each continent is its own form of sin of the tongue. And we can go to each one of these continents and see all of the different states and countries there where all of these different types of sin exist. And so we can consider these things. The destructive nature of so many different types of sins of the tongue. But, but let us just look at a few. What about gossip? Morgan Blake, a sports writer for the Atlanta Journal, wrote this. I am more deadly than the screaming shell from the howitzer. I win without killing. I tear down homes, break hearts, and wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and seldom forgive. My name is Gossip. This was his description of gossip. What about flattery? So many different ways we can flatter one another. But how many lives have been destroyed? How many people have been led into sin and ruin? 
from flattery. When I was in high school and college, there was, a, there was a song. The essence of the song was, tell them what you want, what they want to hear. And this song was about a man telling a woman everything she wants to hear in order for him to get what he desired. What type of destruction has occurred that way? As a man has lied to a woman, led her into sin, deceiving her about his intentions. And this works both ways. Consider the Proverbs. There's a a constant theme in Proverbs. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call understanding your nearest kin, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Proverbs 5.3, for the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. What's the pattern there? Speech. The emphasis is placed upon the words of the immoral woman here. And this could, be, this could go for an immoral man as well. But, but notice that. Proverbs is not warning as much about what she looks like as he is about the flattering she does. And we can look at the crafty harlot in Proverbs chapter 7. This this foolish man walking past the, the, the harlot's house at nighttime. Not a smart thing to do. Setting himself up for disaster. But this crafty harlot wants to seduce him. She wants to lead him into sin. And so we read that she caught him and kissed him. With an impudent face she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. So I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face. And I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. And what happens next? With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately he went after her as an ox to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of stocks till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Listening to the words of this woman cost him his life. John Gill noted that with the flattering of her lips, she forced him to go along with her, not against his will, but with it. Though at first there was some reluctance, conscience rose up and opposed. But her words, which were smoother than oil, found a way into his heart and prevailed upon him to yield to her entreaties. He could no longer withstand her attacks, but surrendered to her. 
Her charming voice and flattering lips had more effect upon him than her kisses. Notwithstanding these, he was reluctant, but could stand it out no longer against her alluring words and soothing language. Did you notice that? It wasn't her dress. It wasn't her lips. It wasn't her perfume. It wasn't her kisses. How did she trap this man? With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. He, he showed some kind of moral restraint. I, I, even though I put myself in a situation, I know it's wrong. I'm going to restrain myself. But her enticing speech stops him in his tracks. And there his ear becomes a victim. And what does she do? With her flattery, she seduces him. And lest we say, dear friends, lest we say, what a weak and foolish man. I would never be trapped by flattery. He tells us, for she has cast down many wounded. And this is an interesting statement. And all who were slain by her were strong men. David's. Samson's. Solomon's. Such is the destructive power of, of, of flattery. That the strong men have been led to death. Because of it. And women as well. What about slander? How destructive is slander? Thomas Watson said, We must be merciful to the name of others. A good name is one of the greatest blessings upon earth. No chain of pearl so adorns as this. This being so, we ought to be very merciful to the reputations of others. They are to be accounted in a high degree unmerciful who make no conscience of taking away the good names of their brethren. The power of slander. That you could actually take away the good names people. Because all you need to do is sow that little seed of slander in their ear and their reputation is diminished. Watson says, the tongue of a slanderer shoots out words to wound the fame of another and makes it bleed to death. The Greek word for devil signifies slanderer. He goes on to say, some think that it is no great matter to defame and traduce another. But no, this is to act the part of a devil. Oh, how many unmerciful men indeed pass for Christians, but play the devil inventing. Playing the devil by slandering. And dear friends, consider the destructiveness of this. Watson says once again, consider also the injuriousness of it. 
You who take away the good name of another, you wound him in that which is most dear to him. Better take away a man's life than his good name. By eclipsing his name, you bury him alive. It is an irreparable injury. Something will remain. A wound in the name is like a flaw in a diamond, which will never die out. No physician can heal the wounds of the tongue. And so Watson gives us a warning about this. He says, God will require it at man's hands. If idle words must be accountable for, shall not reproachful slanders? Listen to this. God will make inquisition one day as well for names as for blood. Think about that. Let all this persuade to caution and circumspection. You would be opposed to steal the goods of others. A man's name is worth far more. Consider that. Proverbs 22.1 A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. A person's name and their reputation is greater than any wealth. And you would say, I'm a Christian, so I would not steal from this person. But dear friends, we are doing a far worse thing when we slander their name. And so Watson says, especially take heed of wounding the names of the godly. God has set a crown of honor on their head, and will you take it off? To defame the saints is no less than the defaming God himself. They having his picture drawn upon them and being members of Christ. Be merciful to the names of others. Dear friends, what does God think of slander? In Romans 1, we we read about these people who are given over to to their sins, to debased minds, and we have a list of their sins and, and what is included on that list. We are told they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Think about how quick we are to do this. Think about how a person disagrees with us and then we bash their name because of it. Think about how willing we are to to hear a rumor that we have not verified and bash people's names because of it. We're like murderers. Hungry, thirsty for blood. David, in showing that he would would reign righteously, said, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. No tolerance. And what about bearing false witness? Let me just give you one illustration of lying. But what happens when Christ was raised from the dead? Chief priest and elder said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
What a destructive lie. To, to deny this, this element that was essential of the gospel. But dear friends, let us conclude this matter today. Let me just give you a few things to think about here. First, let me urge us to remember that because we have been given this tool, this tongue, we will be held accountable. How many words do we speak in a day or type with our fingers? We're held accountable. Christ said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And we say, why? Why on earth would, would God judge us by our words? I mean, they're just words. Christ tells us, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They're not just words. They reveal what is in our hearts. And dear friends, so this this should show us our, our desperate need for Christ. We will be judged for every idle word we've ever spoken. That is terrifying to me. Terrifying. If nothing else in Scripture shows me that that I cannot obtain righteousness by obeying the law, it is this. I will be judged by every word I have ever said. Dear friends, are you ready to stand before God in judgment for every word you have ever spoken? I don't know about you, but I need a substitute. I need a man who spent his entire life using his tongue for good and never sinning with his tongue to stand in my place. And this, dear friends, is what Christ did. We read that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we should become the righteousness of God in Him. What a wonderful thing. Think think of all the the evil things, all the the bad things you've ever said. If you are a believer, those things were nailed to Christ on the cross. God looked upon Christ as though He had said all of the things that we have said, and he treated him accordingly, so that when we stand before God in judgment, God will look at us as though we had the mouth of Christ on earth, and he will treat us accordingly. What a wonderful thought. Dear friends, the only way to experience this is to trust in Christ for salvation and repent of our sins. If you do not trust in Christ for salvation, then you will actually give account for every word you have ever spoken and you will be punished accordingly. But trust in Christ this day. And when you die and stand before God in judgment, God will look upon the righteousness of Christ And judge you according to that. 
And dear friends, even though we cannot earn salvation by our words, and even though we cannot keep ourselves saved by our words, it is all a gift of God. It is grace all the way through, from beginning to end. Even though that is the case, there is still an expectation that Christians produce good fruit, including what comes out of our mouth. We could spend an entire sermon asking the question, answering the question, rather, how should we use our tongues? But but let me just leave you with this answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number 112. What is required in the ninth commandment? And listen to this answer. That I bear false witness against no man nor falsify any man's words, that I be no backbiter, nor slanderer, that I do not judge, nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard. There's 90% of our church conflicts in the world. 90% are right there. That would not condemn a man rashly or join in doing so unheard. Heard, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in judgment and all other dealings I love the truth, I speak it uprightly and confess it. And listen to this. Also, that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. How different would our churches be if we looked at the ninth commandment and said, this requires me to to have nothing to do with lies, to, to not rashly condemn people or join into it without them pleading their case first, and that this means that I need to defend and promote as much as possible the good character and honor of my neighbor. This is life-changing stuff. But difference, this is what is expected of us as Christians. And once again, not that we are saved by obeying this perfectly because none of us have the ability to obey this perfectly. But, but if God has changed our hearts, we are on this lifelong process of sanctification where we should be seeing fruit and progress in the way that we speak. Not perfection, but progress. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a terrifying thing to stand before you and give account for all of our words without Christ. If there be any in here today who don't know you, help them to see this. Oh, and may it drive them to you this very day that they would turn to Christ for salvation at this very moment. And oh, Lord, help us to bear much fruit 
in every area of our lives, including our speech. Help us to use our speech to to build up and to edify. To soberly think about the fact that there is life and death in the power of this little piece of flesh in our mouths. And not that this would cause us to not speak because because we know you. There are many wonderful things we, we need to tell others. Help us to use our words for good. That we would bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.